Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Uh, today, I'm joined by Mr. Yurian Timmer of Fidelity and Plan B. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Okay, nice to see you, Mike, and, uh, and Plan B. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a great. I'm looking forward to it. We've got a lot of really interesting uh, stuff to get into today, so I just want to dive into it. Um, Yurian, uh, you, I'm going to share my screen here. You literally put together the best charts um, uh, certainly on Twitter that I see. Um, and I'm going to be kind of referring to them here as we go through this episode. But um, I want to kind of start off with what your thoughts are on financial conditions, uh, the Fed's uh, tightening cycle, and just what global central banks are doing in general. Uh, so you're in, you, you kind of kicked off this last uh, newsletter that you sent to me before this, um, with just your own thoughts about where we are in terms of the tightening cycle and kind of the narrative that uh, is forming around interest rates. So you just walk us through kind of what's on this chart and what your view is on the Fed and central banks globally. Uh, sure. Uh, and, and it's all, all, all very nice to see uh, you both and to have this conversation with you. I'm, I'm very, uh, very excited to, to be here. But um, so this is an interesting Fed cycle, or it's turning into one, because I think a year ago, <clears throat> we all knew that, you know, the pandemic uh, would run its course and the economy would kind of return to normal and that the zero percent uh, Fed policy, um, not only for, for the Fed, but around the world, uh, would no longer be justified. And certainly the $120 billion in uh, asset purchases per month would no longer be justified. But at that point, uh, the, the expected curve for the Fed to normalize policy was very gradual, very smooth. And basically, if you looked at the euro dollar curve or the Fed funds curve, or even in this chart here, where you see the number of uh, expected rate hikes by various points in time for this year. The curve was very smooth back then, a very gradual return to normal, which would be around 2.5%, which is where uh, the the uh, median uh, dot is for the long-term view of the Fed. Or if you take R star, you know, the natural rate, <clears throat> which I think is around half a percent or so, you add 2% inflation, you get to 25 So a year ago, that was the curve. Obviously, a lot has changed. Inflation has proven to be a lot more uh, you know, stubborn and, and hot uh, than I think a lot of people expected, certainly at the Fed, but I think generally in the marketplace as well. And of course, we got last week's number uh, coming in hot again at 7.5%. And so since the <clears throat> December period, when we got the, the minutes from the previous FOMC meeting, and then the December meeting, and then uh, various further you know speeches uh, by the Fed, uh, the path has been accelerated quite uh, quite aggressively, and now actually um, the expectation is that there will be six and a half rate hikes this year. Obviously, it'll be six or seven, but that's what the market is pricing in. Um, and so that kind of takes us out of the <clears throat> the the kind of the 2015 to 18 analog, which is what I had been looking at um, in terms of a gradual, smooth return to normal without any real urgency. And now there clearly is more urgency to that. Um, and um, But what's interesting to me is that, and you can see that this in this, in this chart, that <clears throat> as successful as the Fed has been at moving expectations in the market and giving that sense of urgency that, you know, we need to do this sooner, faster. Um, the market is still pricing the end point of this cycle 
at around two and a half, two percent, two and a quarter, two percent in a couple of years. So even as the curve of expected rate hikes has moved forward, the endpoint has not. And I think that's kind of a riddle <clears throat> in the markets um, at this point, because um, when we take, for instance, the 1994 cycle, which I think is becoming more and more relevant, and you know that was a long time ago, but <clears throat> back in the 90s, it was the Greenspan Fed, and Alan Greenspan, the maestro, as he was called, uh, would love to kind of troll the markets in a way by raising rates when it wasn't expected or raising them by more than 25 basis points. And so in this chart here, you can see the, the red and uh, blue line in the upper left. Those were the, the euro dollar curves back in December of 93 before the surprise rate hike started. And at the end of the rate hiking cycle, which was in February 95, and you can see that those curves were upwardly sloping in both cases. Uh, and even at the end of a 300 basis point cycle, which of course the market didn't know it was the end um, until it, it, you know, until that became clear later. But even when the Fed was done, the market was still pricing in <clears throat> another 130 basis points or so of tightening. Uh, contrast that to now, again, like I said earlier, um, a year ago or even nine months ago, um, the, the expectations were for a very gradual return to normal. So that's the blue line on the right-hand side of the chart. Um, and now we have the red line, which is a very rapid return to not even quite neutral, but close to neutral, and then basically nothing or even uh, a Fed easing. And uh, I think the way to look at how the market you know, could, um, could thread this needle is that <clears throat> I think the the benign interpretation is that the market concludes that the Fed is making the markets do all the hard work for it uh, by setting expectations and jawboning the markets, um, and that the hard part will be done by the markets. Financial conditions are already tightening. Um, you know, the the the, the two-year notes as as we speak is 157. The five-year notes almost two percent. The ten years at 204. So the market is doing a lot of the heavy lifting for the Fed. And I think the glass half-full interpretation, <clears throat> therefore, would be that the Fed really just has to do a lot of talking. Uh, but if the markets are doing the work for it, when you know, in in a year or two from now, the Fed won't really have to go much above two. Uh, the alternative <clears throat> uh, interpretation, of course, is more of a glass, you know, half empty view, which is that the market thinks the Fed is going to have to chase inflation until it breaks something. And then we get a 2018 scenario during which the market, you know, of course, fell 20% fairly quickly. And that forced the Fed to pivot to a more dovish um, outlook. Um, my guess is that it's going to be the former and not the latter. But it certainly is a conundrum that even with all the hot inflation numbers and all the talk from the Fed about more faster um, sooner, that the market still expects this hiking cycle to end below neutral, um, uh, even if inflation comes back down to three or four uh, percent, which I think is likely over the next couple of years, the Fed would not even end this cycle at, at a neutral point. And that uh, seems inconsistent with the kind of inflation numbers that we're seeing. And I, I really love this chart because it, it sort of uh, has the time period of my entire career on it. It's uh, <laughs> 1992 is, is, is about the period that I started college and, and 1998, the first crisis there was at the time I started working. So uh, I vividly remember all these these um, periods in time and, and especially uh, 
the uh, the rate rate movement. So what I like about this chart is that that you see the uh, three crises so so um, so very um, well um, in, in the chart. So the the 2000 uh, internet bubble. And uh, the Fed had had to accommodate that by by lowering the uh, the interest rates, of course, which and 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 it's much lower than the the actual ten years rate. It's also a short maturity rate, of course. But you you can obviously see the the difference between the Fed rate and the ten year rate being very high after that two thousand internet bubble. And the same happened uh, after the global financial crisis in two thousand eight, where. Um, Rates dropped uh, dropped again to uh, to almost zero, and then right now after March 2020, um, it they dropped again. And uh, but it's 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 a kind of a dual thing because after each crash. So for example, look at the global financial crisis in 2008. Um, they bring they bring the, the the Fed rate down, but it's also after a period where they try to raise the interest rates again. So in 2004 to six, you see, they tried to raise the interest rate. Then something happens. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, the global financial crisis, and they have to to, to to bring the rates back. And you see that in 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 this period as well, around 2020. So they they were talking about about um, raising the interest rates and going back to normal, and they really really wanted to do that, of course. But they they didn't they they didn't succeed because the next uh, a crisis was already there, and then they had to drop them again. So it will be very interesting to see what happens when they actually um, increase the rates, uh, and, and I think they will. But I agree with with Jurian that they, they of course hope that they can do a lot with talking alone and not raising the interest rates because it has a lot of negative impact on valuation, uh, on equities, on the wealth effect of equities. Uh, but also on, on other assets like uh, like Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, f- very interesting what what's going to happen. And um, I I think the market recognizes that uh, the interest rates cannot be hiked to say three, four, or five percent to to say uh, levels that that we that we saw in the early two uh, thousand or, or late nineteen nineties. I think nobody believes that that is possible. So they can re- they can they can um, hike the rates a little bit. Maybe it's it's more symbolic than than anything. Uh, sure. And of course, it will have some ap- effect on the on the on the on the asset valuations. But the last thing they want is to crash the stock market. So they'll be very very sensitive to that. And it, it actually, yeah, it, it would surprise me if they, if they if they were. Uh, hike further than 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 let's say the two three percent that that's that that would really also break the long term trend of course that we see in um, in both the short duration and long duration interest rates um, which has been downward uh, a downward trend since since early nineteen ninety uh, so since the early eighties uh, and I don't think that trend will uh, be broken. Uh, in fact, I'll, and I think Urian thinks the same, but I think the um, Japan is the perfect example here and uh, the uh, po- population, um, uh, aging of population in, in Japan, in Europe, but also eventually in the US will uh, will have its impact here. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I agree a lot with uh, what Urian is saying. I would just add to that, <clears throat> and I agree that, 
you know, the, the global economy and certainly the U.S. is a, is a big part of that is so financialized <clears throat> now and so levered to low rates that I think the market correctly sees that there's only there's a limit to how how high um, interest rates can go and right and and so eventually if the Fed needs to decide between causing a recession and tolerating you know higher inflation I mean not seven percent inflation but three instead of two or four instead of two um, I think the Fed will be forced to 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 accept that. And, and that means that even though uh, real rates are uh, becoming less negative very quickly now, which is what you would expect in a tightening cycle, um, I think what, what Bitcoin and what gold also right now are saying is that at some point, <clears throat> real rates will become more negative, um, not unlike what we saw in the 1940s, where during <clears throat> the middle mm. of that financial repression cycle, the Fed did raise rates very slightly from one to one and a half. Uh, but then <clears throat> they kept rates there while inflation accelerated yet again. And so I, I think that's where the market is kind of viewing this, that, um, you know, four, five, six percent, uh, as Plan B just said, are, are just not going to be possible. We're not going to have a Volcker Fed, you know, uh, anytime soon again, because the system is too levered to, to, to low rates for that. Can you guys maybe help me understand uh, what's going on and how you think about the yield curve in general, right? So to summarize, just for listeners, the Fed has a lot more control over the short end of the curve. So basically, everything from Fed funds up to about the five-year, right? They directly control Fed funds, and it kind of, uh, you know, extends out on the curve. Um, less control over longer-dated treasuries, right? So the 10-year, the 30-year, which is more typically set by growth expectations in general. Um, you know, when you're looking at the yield curve, so here I think we're looking at the spread between the two-year and the 10-year, uh, you know, that kind of is, is the difference, right, in terms of basis points between whatever the yield of the two-year is and, and the 10-year. Um, typically, inversions of the yield curve tends to tend to precede recessions, right? So back, if we're looking at this chart, Yuri, that you put together here, you can see the yield curve inverted in 2000, uh, right, in 2000. I can't, something's blocking me, but around 2006. Uh, and then it actually also inverted in 2020 as well. So did that predict COVID? <laughs> Not really, but we did have a recession. So, you know, I'll leave that up to you. Um, and now the yield curve is basically, uh, you know, trending down and, and folks are worried about that. So can you kind of just describe how you view the yield curve, what it says about the state of the economy? And do you see it as being a reliable predictor of recessions? So normally I would look at the, the three-month or the overnight rate to the 10-year, or you can even use the long bond, uh, which we, we used to in the past before the 10-year became kind of the long-term benchmark rather than the 30-year. Um, and so normally it would be very, very short to very long. But when the Fed anchors short rates for as long as it has, you know, after the financial crisis, we were at zero for, what, six years until late 2015. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that the three using the three month it becomes a little bit less useful um, because the curve is always going to be kind of steeper than maybe what's actually going on. So this is why a lot of people, uh, certainly in the bond market, will use the twos to tens curve because the two year should, in theory, and it does in in reality, um, price in what what the market kind of thinks the Fed is going to do, uh, which the Fed is usually signaling right through the dot plot and all that stuff. So the two year gives you a good handle as to where monetary policy is going. And then the 10 year or the long bond in that in some cases will tell you what the market views 
the 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 outcome will be of that, right? So, like you said, Mike, the 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 front end of the curve is completely controlled by the Fed, and the two year is not completely controlled, but it's it's induced, right? Because if you think about the term structure of interest rates, they're all just a number of forward curves, right? So the mm -hmm. the two year mm -hmm. is the one year plus what's expected after that, um, and so the twos to tens will give you a decent uh, sense of what the market is saying about the about the Fed. And as you can see in the chart, uh, that curve has uh, has narrowed, uh, um, you know, quite a bit. It's still positive. So we're not in the danger zone uh, yet. Right. So when I look at financial conditions there, they've tightened, but they're still pretty loose. I look at real rates, they've become less uh, negative, but they're still negative, at least out to 10 years, the 30 year real rate, uh, as as dictated by the by the tips market, not by the CPI, uh, is now actually slightly positive. Um, and then you look at uh, what's expected, you know, the, the market's expecting uh, probably eight, nine hikes over the next two years. So a lot has been priced in here. Um, and the curve is still positive, at least twos to tens is. Um, so that that is that does offer, you know, a ray of hope that the, that the Fed is actually not going to break um, um, break things during this cycle, and it's interesting that you know the 1994 cycle that we we had just discussed, uh, the Greenspan Fed stopped tightening right as the curve went to kind of zero, and then it backed off. So maybe even the maestro was looking at the yield curve <laughs> back then. And certainly, uh, I think the Fed today and, and you know, the, the, the Fed, you know, b before uh, Chair Powell, um, I think they look at the yield curve very, very intently as a signal from the market, as well as financial conditions. And financial mm -hmm. conditions, you know, there are several indicators out there. Bloomberg has one, Goldman Sachs has a widely followed one. Uh, but it basically consists of the dollar, credit spreads, short rates, long rates, and the S&P 500. So by definition, for the Fed to get a more real-time handle on, on the economy, it has to look at the markets. Uh, but the markets aren't always right, and the markets can cause whipsaws. And, and then people, uh, you know, uh, you know, um, blame the Fed for for essentially being, uh, you know, uh, being servants to the financial markets. But they have to look at real time indicators in some way. And the yield curve um, is is certainly one of the biggest ones. And it's heading in the wrong direction. But again, that's what you would expect in a tightening cycle. The yield curve should, in theory, never steepen in a tightening cycle, uh, but it has not yet reached the danger zone, which would be below zero. Now, there's this old old saying, right, that, that, you know, the bond market is the singular source of truth, right, in general. Um, and, you know, something that I've been hearing from guests that we brought on the show recently is, is, is maybe there's some reason to think that the 10-year is not an honest uh, signal as it used to be. And there are a couple of reasons for, for why that might be, right? But it's, you know, basic... Um, Maybe you might call it manipulation or, or certainly more intervention by the Fed. Um, we, we had a guy, Joseph Wang, uh, who's, who's uh, the co-host of Forward Guidance uh, with my colleague Jack Farley, um, who kind of outlined this pretty neat idea about pre and post great financial crisis, right, where you had a bunch of regulation post GFC that forced big banks to buy up uh, treasuries, which kind of distorted the pricing signal. I'd just be very curious, um, you know, when you kind of look at the bond market, and let's say the U.S. 10-year in general, um, do you view it as an accurate pricing signal, or is it more distorted by intervention by governments, uh, central banks, etc.? I think it's more the latter. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to used to be more of the former, but um, and 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 also in, with respect to the to, to the earlier chart, I think they 
The yield curve, of course, is a uh, an X-ray of the market, uh, how, how how one of the deepest markets in the world, in fact, the deepest market in the in the world, the um, interest rates markets are looking at things. And the two-year domain, of course, is the bank domain, um, because banks have liabilities that are typically saving accounts in the in the two-year um, uh, maturity domain, and and ten to thirty years is, of course, uh, pension funds, um, mortgages. Uh, so that's that's an entirely different uh, group or asset looking at the market, and um, so the yield curve gives gives you all those perspective in in one line over time mm-hmm. also dynamically. So it's 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 great, and sometimes it goes wrong indeed when when you go negative. That that almost always um, predicts a uh, uh, recession. Um, however. Lately, uh, things have changed a bit. So, so it used to be that the market participants, the banks, the the, the pension funds, um, were, were were giving their votes, if you will, by by buying bonds. And 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 you could read in the in in the in the yield curve how they uh, thought about the future. But right now, I guess, uh, but maybe maybe things are different in Europe than in the U.S. So I'm very interested in Indurian's uh, perspective as well. Right now in Europe, um, the central bank is, is one of the biggest buyers. In fact, they're in the whisper to be the only buyer, the one buyer. Uh, those are the mm-hmm. terms that you hear. So I guess even mortgages, uh, 50% of all the mortgages are bought by uh, by the central bank. So wow. in that way, the central banks right now have, have very um, much control, not only uh, over the over the short term durations and their own Fed funds uh, rates, but also over the two year, ten year, and and thirty year uh, uh, rates. So, um, I guess if if we go negative now, it's it's more like um, <laughs> a little mistake <laughs> or something uh, of two departments not not talking to each other. And uh, but in the end, I guess the signal is less pure. The signal that the yield curve gives to investors is less pure now than it was before all the quantitative easing. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and I don't think you have the chart on this, um, Mike, but um, but I have a, a, a cloud chart, which I can send to you. Maybe we, we can splice it in um, later. Sure. But that shows um, a scatter plot of uh, inflation expectations through the tips market uh, and nominal yields. Um, and you can pretty clearly see how the Fed's asset purchases have created um, uh, a situation of financial repression um, and which last year, uh, you know, basically pulled the 10 year yield uh, about 100 basis points below where it should otherwise have been. And actually, if you can pull up that bond chart uh, that you had on before that, that's a very simple bond model. It's not that one. It's the one uh, with with the green. Yeah, that one. Uh, It shows you how far below kind of my fair value band uh, the the, the 10-year yield got last year, right? So I have a very simple bond model that says, you know, give me the 10-year nominal GDP rate, the Fed funds forward curve, and uh, a demographic indicator, which in this case is the growth rate in the labor force, because demographics, I do think, drive uh, interest rates um, very powerfully. And and you can see this kind of this band, and the band is moving up because the Fed is tightening, and therefore the forward curve is being lifted. Uh, But we're kind of near what would be considered fair value, but a year ago we were well below it. And so I do think that that shows you the financial repression of the impact 
of asset purchases. And Plan B just mentioned, you know, what the ECB is doing and, and earlier uh, what Japan is doing. I think Japan is a very good example because their demographic trends are about 10 to 15 years ahead of ours in the U.S. Uh, and Europe is a little bit ahead of us um, as well. And so demographic trends, uh, aging, you know, baby boomers in the U.S. at least, um, uh, are I think are a very clear deflationary force and that whatever inflation we're getting now has to offset that deflationary uh, force. And so, you mm. know, the Bank of Japan owns half the debt in Japan and it's buying half the supply um, on an ongoing basis and and it has completely tamed the bond market over there you know the the annualized volatility of long-term JGBs uh, Japanese government bonds is three in Japan uh, versus 11 here in the US so it, it shows you where we might go in the bond market in the coming years and if that happens against the backdrop of persistent inflation, which of course in Japan has not been the case, but in the U.S. maybe it will, then you can see how uh, how people are are looking for real stores of value uh, as a hedge against that. Some some of these statistics here are just absolutely nuts. So everyone kind of knows and has accepted uh, some of the extreme monetary experimentation that the BOJ, right, the Bank of Japan, has kind of undertaken. Plan B. I wanted to ask you this, is you I didn't want to interrupt you, but did you say that the ECB has is buying? 50% of all mortgages in Europe? I mean, is that, is that correct? That is nuts. The same <laughs> is true. Yeah, it is. And the same is true for bonds, right? Yuri mentioned as well in Japan. It, it's, I think it's the same in the US, that the biggest buyer, maybe 50%, I don't know, in the US, but especially, yeah, the, the central bank is buying, is also buying equities, by the way. So we're, we're going into that in the next topic, I guess. But yeah, it's, it's a driving force and it's a big problem. You know, it's a very fundamental thing. Can we, um, there used to be a big um, division between the state and the central bank. But right. that division has, has become less and less because right now uh, the, government, the government emits bonds and the central bank is buying them with, well, out of thin air, of course, and and yeah, so so the two are one in in, in a way. The Fed owns, I think, uh, the Fed's balance sheet is I think thirty six percent of GDP. Um, the Bank of Japan's balance sheet is one hundred and twenty eight percent of GDP. So if you think the Fed has already gone to extremes, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. If you look at uh, <laughs> Japan, <laughs> yeah, exactly that point because in, in Europe is is always somewhere in between. <laughs> And and as as Jurian said, the demographic component is very strong, and and you can see that in 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 the rates, you can see it in the the balance sheets, the central bank balance sheet. It's it's almost like a yeah powerful predictor of what's going to happen with rates. Hmm. This is an important component of the crypto discussion because there is a an element out there that is convinced that the dollar is going to get trashed, it's going to lose its reserve uh, currency status. And you just have to look at not only Europe, but Japan, and what they've done in terms of their kind of fiscal monetary integration and how far they've gone, and how stable their currencies are. And so I, I do think that that is a cautionary tale uh, in, in terms of thinking that fiat currencies are going to be nothing. Maybe when they, maybe because they all lose value similar in the same way, there'll be nothing. But but so far, the currency side of this, I think, has probably been more stable than a lot of people uh, expected in terms of in terms of what happened to Japan. 
Yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on just what you view almost like the real world IRL implications of some of this crazy monetary policy is. Because I think you're absolutely right in pointing out if you look at what the BOJ has done, right, the yen is still a relatively stable currency. And, you know, if you were to describe some of the actions that even the Fed has taken, right, to someone living 20 years ago, you know, they would have might have understandably called for hyperinflation. We haven't seen anything of that sort. But I would argue that I think there are other kind of societal implications for some of this monetary policy. Like, I mean, if, if you even just look at, right, the Fed is buying up with QE an enormous amount of um, mortgage-backed securities, right, which is kind of supporting the housing market. That has implications for the next generation that's trying to buy their home for the first time. Just look at housing prices in the U.S. I mean, it's absolutely nuts. Um, and I think... Also, I mean, I don't think you can draw a direct line to the Fed here, but certainly it seems like we're living in a bit of a wonky time politically, uh, both domestically for me and Yuri in, in the United States, but also geopolitics tends to be heating up. Um, I mean, how much of a line do you guys draw between some of this, let's say, uh, unprecedented or, or unorthodox monetary policy um, and kind of some of the, the weirdness that we're just seeing on the global stage? Yeah. I don't think it's weird at all. It, it's something that we've seen over the centuries, um, even over uh, millennia, because mm. uh, even the Romans did it, right? The debasement yep. is is uh, a real thing, and it's it's a very uh, profitable thing to do for governments because they they need the money for warfare and welfare. So even the Romans they debased their their currency to the extent that the silver uh, content of the denarius was ninety percent, and it dropped to ten percent. Mm. Even to the level that the the the, the <laughs> Roman soldier said, we don't don't pay us in in, in denarius, <laughs> pay us in gold or or homes or land, but but you keep your your fiat, <laughs> and right. um, and so we're seeing that uh, right now, again, and 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 since 1971, um, in an accelerated fashion, that um, the central banks are are uh, yeah, basically uh, creating money out of thin air. It's it's not a secret, and helping governments doing their thing, and um, yeah, that that distorts asset prices, uh, house prices, um, uh, stock prices, um, Bitcoin prices, everything, and um, yeah. So so the fact that we're seeing it is not weird. I think it's a normal thing, but um, yeah, it, it's it's it's. It's it's weird to think about it because we also know where it ends, right? Or at least where it ended, this all these past times. So it's it's a very interesting time to be uh, to be alive. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with that. And you know whether what the Fed is doing is the the cause for all of the craziness that we're seeing, or whether it's just a symptom of it, and that. Yeah, we were heading in that direction anyway. I, I don't think anyone of us knows in real time, but clearly the policy response gets more and more severe with every cycle or so it seems. Um, and the question is, what would have happened if there was no policy response? Um, and then obviously, you know, the Fed is trying to uh, moderate the boom bust cycle, which, you know, if you go back and look at, at U.S. economic history back before the 1900s, when it was more of an agricultural economy, you were always in a boom-bust mode. You either had you know, mm. a massive yeah. boom or a deflationary bust, and the cycles were about two years long, and it was always up and down and up and down. And then um, you know, after, the, after the Great Depression, of course, and as the economy became more of a service economy and less of a cyclical manufacturing or agricultural economy, 
the cycles got smoother, and now we have you know a recession not even every ten years on on average. Um, but the question is, what is the what are the the unintended or intended consequences of that? And obviously, the financialization of the global economy, especially the U.S. economy, uh, makes you know interest rates uh, kind of the the master you know that ultimately decides the decides the fate. It's the stock market as well, of course, via the wealth effect. And it's interesting. We were talking about uh, kind of the mispricing of bonds before. Um, there is a direct channel from there to uh, equity valuation. You know, I've, I, I, and you and I may have had this conversation in the past looking at the discounted cash flow model and yep. what the, the discount rate has as, as an effect on it. And you know, we, we, so I, the discounted cash flow model is great because you can explain literally everything <laughs> through that model. Uh, it's yeah. also terrible because there are so many variables <laughs> that you can never really solve for anything because there's so many moving parts. It's like four dimensional chess, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you isolate certain variables, right, so you have cash flows in the in the in the numerator and uh, the discount rate in the denominator of the formula. But in the denominator, the discount rate is the, the risk-free rate, the 10-year yield, and the equity risk premium. And the equity risk premium historically has been around 4%. Today, it's around 3 um, But But the, the risk-free rate, of course, is a, is a very important variable because that's the, the bond yield, um, and that f feeds right into this model. And a year ago, uh, when the 10-year Treasury was 100 basis points too low, and you can see it on this chart here, that, that's a difference between um, where the 10-year is trading and where it should be trading, at least according to my models, uh, that's at the horizontal. And on the vertical, you see the difference in what the DCF says the equity market should be priced at and what it is priced at. And you can see that the line goes from upper left to lower right. And a year ago, when the 10-year yield was clearly repressed by QE, uh, the market was six points too high in terms of its PE. Um, that is being actually reset very rapidly now. Um, and so at this point, with the 10-year going from you know sub 1% to now above 2%, that valuation gap, that asset price inflation, uh, which we can clearly quantify here, is has almost been um, uh, almost been corrected, and so I think that that actually makes me more optimistic that a lot of the the reset that needs to happen in the stock market because of the changing nature of the liquidity cycle that's that's now underway that a lot of that damage actually already has been done um, and uh, so anyway that's just my my take on that um, so I'd love to get your your both your thoughts on Plan B. Maybe I'll just pick on you here um, just in terms of almost sentiment right now so we're looking at uh, put call ratio which kind of suggests that uh, we might be uh, you know, nearing a sentiment low. Uh, I don't have this chart. I wonder if we can we can pull it up here. But um, there there was a chart going around that that uh, sentiment was even worse uh, a couple of weeks ago than in March of 2020. <laughs> so people were like really panicking. Uh, and then you're in. A, I love this chart just of uh, insider buying uh, kind of picking up. So I guess um, Plan B. I'll, I'll kind of pick on you here and say uh, you know. Combining these two charts uh, with what uh, Urian was saying about fair value for for the stocks right now. I mean. Do you, do you think that we've still got lower to go? Do you think that um, the the hiking cycle has been kind of priced in, right? Obviously, some of these, uh, we had a chart on mean stocks here, which have gotten absolutely uh, walloped. <laughs> um, so do you kind of think uh, that we've still got lower to go here, or, or some of the pain has already been priced in, so to speak? Well, to be honest, I, I don't have an outlook for, for equities. Uh, 
so so I, I guess it all depends on what the interest is going to do. If the interest is going uh, to be raised more than the market expects, mm -hmm. um, and we saw from earlier charts, the market does not expect a very high interest rate, let's say higher than 2%, 3%. But, but if the Fed does go there, that will be dramatic for stock market. But yeah, well, I, I guess together with the market, I don't think they go there. So that, that, that could very well that that aligns basically with what Julian is saying about uh, we, we've seen the worst uh, maybe yet because all the rate hikes that are um, uh, that we talk about and that the Fed is talking about those are expected by the market those are priced in already uh, mm -hmm. so only the difference between what's going to happen and what's not expect and what is expected is going to have an effect on the price uh, with regard to the Put call parity. I really like derivatives markets. Mm. Um, there's a lot going on there. I like that chart that you showed. Uh, yeah, that one. Because yeah. what you see, there, there's a lot of things going on there. And, and what you see is that there's a lot more calls than puts in, in uh, bull markets. And it, it sort of is a, a investor sentiment. Uh, and of course, the calls and the puts uh, from a professional perspective are, are delta neutral. So, mm. so those are volatility trades. They should mm. not uh, reflect anything um, regarding the, the level of the stock market in this case. Uh, so what we're seeing here is just uh, uh, the volatility or the two markets, that, uh, the, the, the two sides of every market, the calls and the puts that are, that are um, bidding up the prices or bidding them down. So for example, in and you see that in, in, in Bitcoin, even to, to a more extreme, but in bull markets, there's a lot of leverage longs. And the other side of the trade, of course, are the cash and carry traders. So they, uh, right. and, 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 that, and, that, and that creates some very high open interests, uh, very, very high uh, contract volumes. Um, and of course, if the bull market is over, then, uh, well, a lot of the traders don't don't dare to trade with uh, a lot of uh, uh, leverage anymore, and and that all goes away, including the the uh, the cash and carry trade, and we can see that very clearly in the Bitcoin market. But in this chart, it's also very clear from the three dips, right, in the in the middle of the chart, and um, yeah, I think the if we're talking about leading and lagging indicators, then um, the derivatives markets is one of the more interesting things to look at because they might be a little faster because of all the arbitrages than the just plain spot markets of uh, equities and bonds. I've got one more question uh, on equities here before we move on to uh, Bitcoin in general. But um, you've got some uh, pretty interesting thoughts here on earnings in general. And if, if I remember the last time that we, we chatted, uh, when we kind of went more in depth about uh, your kind of DCF approach for looking at the market, uh, you know, there are kind of two different things to take into account when you're looking at equities valuations, which is uh, the the valuation, the multiples that equities get, uh, and then the earnings, right, that uh, equities are producing in general. Uh, what seems like is going to happen, right? And you tell me if I'm uh, incorrect here, but you know, as rates go up, uh, you know, kind of that description that you were that you were giving before about the relationship between valuations and uh, rates, you know, we should see compression in terms of multiples that equities are getting. So then it really becomes earnings job to kind of carry the stock market in general. So if you could kind of walk us through, a was that correct? A correct summary, kind of of your thoughts here, and then B, what do you expect earnings to do in 2022, or, or what are we looking at with this chart here? 
Yeah, no, I think that, that that's exactly correct. And I think it's important to uh, to to understand that, you know, the market can correct. So valuation ultimately is what matters, right? Price is just price. And the same is true for, for Bitcoin, by the way. Like, that's why it's so important to have valuation models, because the price is, is just that. Um, and so, you know, so per our, our, our uh, what, what we were just talking about, the Fed's financial repression last year caused the P.E. to go up six points higher than, in my view, what it otherwise should have been um, off of a base of a 20 P.E. That's a 25 percent asset price inflation. Uh, people call it a bubble, a Fed-induced bubble. I don't think 25% is a bubble, but it's certainly a significant increase in valuation that you can attribute just from the interest rate change, right? Not even from the earnings side. Um, and so as that has now come out, because the liquidity tide's going back out to sea, and uh, and we see that the PE on the S&P 500 based on this year or next year's earnings is already down over four points. So we're we're not quite there, but we're almost there. But that doesn't mean that, so if, if the PE is 25% too high, which means that it would have to come down 20% from the high to correct itself, that doesn't mean the market has to go down 20%. It just means the PE has to come down 20%. So last year, earnings growth was 50%. If we go to the other to the next slide, which is the, 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 the calendar year um, outlook, 50% um, earnings growth will cover a lot of sins, right? Because you can have <laughs> a multiple reset, but if the earnings number is so strong, you won't feel it in the markets. And so for this year, for 2022, um, with earnings growth clearly slowing, and right now the consensus expectation is for 7% growth, uh, which is down from the beginning of the year, which was at 8.7% growth. Uh, but 7% is still okay. Uh, but again, if the PE comes down 20% and earnings go up, let's say, 10, uh, that has different implications for price than if the PE was coming down 20%. Um, and there was no earnings growth, then it would be a 20% price cut as opposed to maybe a 10 or 12% price cut. And that's, by the way, 12% is what we've already seen, right? And actually, you had the meme, the meme stock chart up earlier. Uh, but one thing that I think um, some, some people are missing uh, is that even though the S&P is only very recently in a correction, I think the high was January 4th, and we're now you know mid-February, um, Really, the rotation, the the churn, the correction in the in the in the kind of the frothy part of the stock market uh, has been going on for over a year now, right? So this is the mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs Retail Favorite Index, which I think is a reasonable proxy for the meme stocks. Uh, they peaked in you know like February of 2021. They're down about 30, 35 percent at the recent lows. They're up a little bit from there, but those are the stocks. Those are the stocks that have little to no earnings or earnings stability, and therefore are very much influenced by the liquidity tide, which was coming in hard, of course, over the last two years between the fiscal and the monetary side. That tide is back out to sea, right? The build back better is kind of languishing in Washington. Mm -hmm. The Fed is now obviously taking the punch bowl away. And so these would be the stocks that you would expect to falter in that environment. And that's exactly what's happened. And it's been happening for, for about a year. So this correction in the stock market um, is, is much longer in the tooth than I think uh, people might, might conclude if they just look at the S&P 500.
something that you said resonated with me, which is maybe we saw kind of peak meme stock mania back in February of last year. I think you can make a pretty strong argument that you saw retail leave the crypto market uh, back in about April of 2021 as well. Um, so what we're looking at here is just a chart of Bitcoin uh, starting in August of 2020. Uh, Plan B, um, since this is maybe more your era especially, I'd, I'd love to just get your thoughts on where you see Bitcoin going in 2022 in general. Um, do you, <laughs> I, I kind of want to ask you about this, this idea of like the super cycle. Uh, do you believe that we've abandoned four-year cycles in general? Um, what are your just kind of thoughts uh, on, on Bitcoin over the, the past year and, and kind of moving forward? Yeah, well, I think you described it very well. Uh, there's, there's basically two scenarios. One is the meme stock scenario, mm -hmm. um, and and um, in low interest rates environments that we that we have had, um, uh, a lot of money will be uh, misallocated to maybe not so good investments, <laughs> meme <laughs> stocks, uh, and I'm I'm quite sure that um, institutional investors who are well, at least in Europe and at least the ones I know not very fond of Bitcoin, not very known to Bitcoin as well. I know for Fidelity, that's very, very different. It's, mm -hmm. it's like the, the white raven out there. But uh, um, a lot of institutional investors see Bitcoin as a tech stock uh, and maybe even a, a meme stock. So one of the candidates that will go down when interest rates go uh, go up and, and this misallocation of capital into the funny stocks uh, 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 yeah, unwinds. So that's that's one scenario. The other scenario is, of course, well, Bitcoin is a more like a commodity, um, or or, or a, a, a currency even with a yield curve or an interest rates at least uh, not not that far out as the as the US dollar, but at least one year out, uh, and and if a sharp ratio of uh, well at least higher than one which is very uh, unique for Bitcoin. It has very high volatility, but the upside potential uh, is even higher. So it makes a very crazy investment, actually. Mm. Um, uh, one that has not, yeah, well, it's the only one out there with uh, return, return above uh, volatility. And yeah, I think it's, it's, there is also an arbitrage relationship there with, uh, with interest rates. Um, and with currencies that, uh, and we didn't talk about it, but we talked about the link between the rates, uh, the interest rates, the bonds and the equity market. Mm -hmm. We didn't, but there's also a very tight link, maybe even tighter, because it's a direct arbitrage and it's also mathematical uh, between foreign exchange and interest rates. So for example, the one year interest rates in, in, in Europe is minus uh, 25 basis points. The, um, the one-year rate in the U.S. is 1.25, I guess. So that's 150 basis points between them. If the U.S. is going to raise interest rates and, and, and Europe is not, that makes the dollar more interesting, more attractive, and, and money will flow to the dollar. The dollar will get stronger. Uh, and there's a very direct um, arbitrage relationship with, with futures, of course. You can buy dollars or sell euros right now or, or one year ahead. And, and and capture that that spread and if you look at bitcoin as a as a currency you can do the same the exact same thing th through the exact same mecha mechanism uh, uh, namely the futures so you can lock in and currently it's low but you can lock in like eight nine ten percent in in futures contango premium um with um and, and finance that with with uh, negative yielding uh, euros for example uh, and I think I, I, maybe I'm, I'm so much focused on it because I'm in Europe and the, ne the rates are negative. 
So, um, but yeah, I I see Bitcoin as a uh, as a as a unique um, asset with a with a asymmetric upside, uh, uh, a positive sharp ratio, and a direct arbitrage with uh, fiat currencies. So that is the total opposite than uh, a meme stock. Uh, and and uh, yeah, well, those are the two extreme scenarios, and of course, I uh, I think the latter will uh, will see the latter, uh, and and not the meme stock scenario. But that will be the interesting thing to watch in the well, I guess next couple of months. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. I'd love to get both of your thoughts here just in terms of how you think about valuing Bitcoin in general. Right? You know, there, I think, uh, and uh, plan B, B, me, I'll actually pick on you again uh, to give your thoughts on kind of stock to flow in general. But there are a couple of uh, methodologies, right, that I've heard people use to value Bitcoin. One is stock to flow, which plan B, I know uh, you've done a great job in um, kind of getting out there. Uh, the other is kind of Metcalfe's law uh, or some variation on Metcalfe's law looking at the network value of Bitcoin. Um, how do you guys think about valuing Bitcoin or putting some sort of valuation methodology around around Bitcoin? Well, it, it's very important. I think for every investor, especially the, the professional investors, you have to have some framework uh, for valuation. Um, and for equities, that's the discounted cash flow model. That Jurian talked about for uh, foreign exchanges, it's the uh, well the arbitrage model with the uh, interest rates, etc., etc. So you so you need a fundamental model, and maybe um, to start, it's it's good thing to reiterate that indeed it's about valuation. It's about a model, a, a theoretical value. It's not about price. Mm. So of course the price has to so. It, 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 it's above and below the the valuation line, uh, and that's okay. But the valuation is is something different than than price. So valuation is very important. And and basically, if I'm if I simplify it totally, you can you can you can you, you can use a lot of things to value Bitcoin. You can use uh, indeed the, the non-zero addresses. You can you can use the uh, transaction volume or the UTXO volume or the the hash rate. To make the link with the miners, or you can use the stock to flow ratio, or you you can just use time <laughs> as, mm. as an adoption uh, <laughs> variable. Yep. And basically, they all show you one thing: they, uh, that the price goes up and to the right, mm. and uh, and then it becomes more 
of a personal taste, I guess, which one you would pick. Uh, you can go very mathematical with it. You can go, uh, you, you can do an econometric discussion about which model fits better or which model has co-integration or, or is, is not overfitted, et cetera, et cetera. Or you can do a very fundamental um, perspective on it. And that's what I did with the stock to flow, of course. So the, the, what I like is, well, uh, like the capital asset pricing model, it, it's just very plain. Capital asset pricing model says the more volatile an asset, the higher its returns. And um, the stock to flow model says the, the scarcer the asset, the higher the market cap should be. And in that case, maybe, yeah, it, it, it can be used as a very rough valuation model certainly not as a short-term trading model um, and as we all know um, the model is indicating hundred thousand dollar valuation of bitcoin um, for last year this year and 2023 in fact for the for the entire four-year periods um, and of course the price has been uh, much below that uh, so, so the question now is is the model invalid do we have to refit the model or Will the next two years of this cycle be above that model valuation line? Mm -hmm. uh, say, for example, 150,000, uh, which is only a 3x or a little bit more than we are today, and we can do that in, you know, two, three, four months. So, so, and then that, then it's in an entirely different world. But right now, it's 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 kind of um, yeah, very inter interesting what's uh, what's going to happen, and uh, let's see what's going to happen. I just want to give my, my respect to Plan B because um, um, I only fell down uh, the Bitcoin rabbit hole, uh, I don't know, 15, 16 months ago. And, you know, I I mean, I followed, obviously, the whole Bitcoin story. Uh, you know, I go to Burning Man. All my burner friends were always talking about Bitcoin back <laughs> years ago. Um, but it was always kind of a sideshow until, you know, it goes up enough that everyone starts to ask questions. And obviously, in, as a as a person with a public role at Fidelity, I need to have, you know, I, I, I concluded I better start coming up with an answer. <laughs> and the only way to do that is to go deep uh, and to do, you know, what Michael Saylor says is you, you got to put in the hours, otherwise you're not going to understand it and you're not going to have the conviction to hodl when it goes against you because you're going to you're going to puke them out like people do with, with the meme stocks because they don't know enough. Um, and so my first step was just to kind of recreate uh, or re re-understand the narrative. And literally the first thing I did was to look up the stock to flow model and learn about plan B's model. And, and, you know, unfortunately it's all out there uh, to be, to be seen. It's open source. Um, and that was kind of my first, you know, as, as a, as a, as a math nerd, as an analyst, you know, I, I need to have numbers. I, I can't just do it because it feels right. And so that was my first, you know, jump down the rabbit hole was to essentially reverse engineer the stock to flow, not, not to make a, a different version of it, but just to understand the math. Um, and then, you know, I said, okay, there's something really great here. I mean, obviously, stock to flow has perfectly explained or has very well explained uh, Bitcoin's, uh, you know, evolution or, or, or revolution, I would say, over the past 10 years. Um, but then I'm like, okay, there, there's got to be more, right? I mean, something can be scarce, but if it doesn't have value, it doesn't matter how scarce it is, right? And so mm -hmm. obviously, Bitcoin has 
a value uh, because otherwise stock to flow would have would have not worked for, for you know for, for a number of years already. Um, so I quickly got to the demand side and I've studied you know, S-curves in the past. I've looked at kind of, you know, China's emergence as a global economy uh, by studying S-curves uh, in the past. And so I quickly went down that path. And I, you know, I kind of, you know, actually, if we go to the, the previous chart that, that shows the addresses, um, you know, you, you can do a pretty simple math. I mean, that, that that smooth line is just a simple power regression in Excel. Like, it's it's nothing fancy, right? Um, and it explains, um, you know, as Plan B said, you know, that the, the, the time series for adoption. Um, and then I added, um, and I think we have the chart somewhere, but I added uh, mobile phone subscription uh, um, growth, you know, in whatever that was, the, the 80s or 90s, um, mm. internet adoption mm. as well. And, I, and it's funny because when I posted my demand model, uh, you know, over a year ago, yeah. That, so the the pink line is the mobile phone S curve model, and the the purple line is the internet adoption S curve model. But I, you know, I got all all, all the Bitcoin maxis gave me so much grief for using mobile <laughs> phones. I'm like, this is nothing like mobile phones. I'm like, that's not the point, dummy. That's not it's the about point. Yeah. the S curve, you know. <laughs> It's about exponentially growing networks. And then Metcalf's law, of course, as we know, states that, you know, as your network grows, your valuation grows exponentially even to that. Like the, the growth, the network is already growing exponentially. So the, the price or the value grows double exponentially, right? So if we go to the Apple chart, um, so I'm like, okay, well, Give me, you know, I wanted to learn more about some specific examples. And so I decided to look at Apple. I'm not a security analyst. I don't know Apple stock from any other stock, but uh, mm -hmm. obviously Apple has been a, is a dominant player. It has a massive network effect. Actually, let's go to the to the other one, the one that precedes it. Um, and and what you see is is a very simple, um, you know, analog here, right? So this this shows in the orange line Apple's 12 months uh, trailing sales, which to me is a very crude approximation of its network, right? As its network grows, its revenues should be growing um, alongside with it. And since it's uh, low in 1996, um, the network has grown 53-fold. Um, but the market cap has grown 1,700-fold, right? So the market cap is a multiple of the network growth. So if we go to the next chart, showing that just in a different way, uh, you can see, so what I've done here is I've indexed the price to sales ratio to Apple's stock price back in 1996. And what you can see is that from that point, uh, the price is up 1,500 times, but the price to sales ratio, which is the valuation metric, is up 30 times. And so everything is an exponent of everything else. And I think that's kind of generally... Uh, what the skeptics of Bitcoin maybe miss. Um, and so if we go to the next slide, I've applied that same logic uh, to Bitcoin. And to me, the valuation metric that I like the most is just very simple, the price to network ratio, right? So the price mm -hmm. divided by millions of addresses. Uh, it, it's really that simple. And you can see that indexed to the price in 2010 or 11, I forget, um, the price to network ratio is up 867x and the price is up 640,000x. And mm. I don't know if this is a literal interpretation of Metcalf's law, but it's my creative license. But if you just do a square of the 867x, you get to something resembling the 640,000x. And so to me, this is a way of having an anchor 
evaluation anchor, like Plan B said, so that you actually have something to compare the price to. Right. And so um, so in the next chart, I've compared Apple and Bitcoin side by side and you can see uh, they're not the same thing, of course. One is a, a stock, one is a, a commodity currency, which I think is a very good way of 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 of, uh, of labeling it. Uh, but you can see that they followed the same kind of evolution. And so for me, what matters is is that curve going up and to the right, as Plan B said. And if we go to the next chart, you can see that um, if if the network effect keeps evolving like it has during past S-curves, then it is going up and to the right. And, you know, I'm not here to make any price predictions that's gotten me into trouble in the past. But you can see that that demand curve, unless something breaks with Bitcoin, uh, which I think it's probably too late for, right? It's too big. Um, I don't think anyone, at least in in the major countries, um, intends to outlaw it or anything like that. Maybe they put some guardrails around stable coins, whatever. But uh, I'm, I'm not seeing anything that says there's going to be that the regulators are going to completely kill this. Um, and, and at this point, it has critical mass. It has that first mover advantage. So uh, if the demand side, the network effect keeps going up and to the right, then really all that matters for me as an investor is where is that price now versus where that curve is going. And if the price is at 44 and uh, and the curve is going to 100 uh, and actually uh, the plan B, my, my kind of price level, not a target, but my the price level that would correspond with where this network effect is likely to go is around 100,000 in 2023. So our, our numbers are exactly the same in that sense. And then it's just a question of if it's 50, then, you know, that, that, that that's a bargain. It's cheap. If it's 150, it's expensive. And uh, and you know, I'm I'm not I'm not here to buy and sell Bitcoin. I'm a long term investor, but that's how I come up with a valuation framework and whether Bitcoin does or does not have value at this point. I mean, it has value, but whether it's overpriced or underpriced relative to that value. Yeah, I, I love that analysis, by the way. It, it's, uh, it, it's a great example of how you can um, use a laws like the Metcalf law and, and, and uh, earlier innovations like the mobile phone and the internet and project that with some creative touch, of course, uh, to a new invention. And uh, I'd love to see, uh, yeah, I love, I love the analysis. I also love that, by the way, that Fidelity um, does it as one of the biggest uh, asset managers in the world, um, which should signal to most investors to take the asset serious because... Uh, yeah, well, and, and and the other thing is, I really like it to be open source as well, so so we can we can replicate it, we can we can discuss it, because uh, there's a lot of hedge funds, of course, also doing these kinds of um, analysis, but they're not publishing about it. They're they're sort of keeping it proprietary. And I think what we need at the moment is discussions like we're having right now, and analysis like the chart before us, and 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 uh, talk about this innovation, this this asset, this investment, and where it's going. So yeah. I, I I really love to uh, to see more of this uh, <laughs> this kind of analysis. Oh, that's well. great. Thank you. As well, guys. Um, I, I've got uh, just a, a couple closing questions here uh, for the two of you. I, I know we want to stay away from uh, price predictions and everything, but I'd love to, to I'd love to just get your thoughts on kind of this idea of the four year cycle, super cycle, Bitcoin halving, etc. Right. So in the past, I mean, the crypto market has kind of followed these very. Um, 
let's say, predictable kind of four-year boom-bust cycles. They're, they're anchored around the Bitcoin happening, right? And the supply shock kind of leads to a, a run-up in Bitcoin prices, and then a whole bunch of altcoins follow. There's a bear market that proceeds for the next two years, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I think Suzu, uh, who's the leader of uh, Three Arrows Capital, is kind of the first guy to propose this alternative way of looking at it, which is basically that can't go on super predictably forever, right? This asset class is either going to make it or it's not going to make it. And that was, that was when he coined the term super cycle. Um, and I think you can make a pretty strong argument that we're actually in the super cycle right now, although this is not what anyone thought it would <laughs> probably look like. It wasn't their, uh, their dream version of the super cycle, which is basically that you're just seeing a departure from how crypto has behaved in the past. And I think that makes a lot of sense just from a first principle standpoint. You have a more institutional holder base. You have more sophisticated investors. Um, there are more types of assets that you can buy outside of just Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is a, a relatively smaller part of the market for crypto than it's been in the past. So I'd love to just get your, uh, both your thoughts on um, kind of a market cycle standpoint. Do you think we still are in these sort of four-year cycles? Uh, is the happening as important as it used to be? Or what's your kind of thought process for what we should expect in 2022, staying away from specific price predictions? Yeah, well, I think the halving cycle is still very much alive. At, at least it was alive uh, last time, right, mm -hmm. in, the, in 20, uh, 2020, because there was one party talking about, uh, well, the halving cycle and stock to flow and, and, and price increase. But there was also a very large group on the other side that talked about the, the death spiral and the hash rate going down and Bitcoin <laughs> going to zero and, and Bitcoin was dead, basically. And, and we've seen that same discussion uh, in all three past halvings. And I'm quite sure we'll see that, that same discussion pop up again in the 2024 halving. So as long as if there is um, two views fighting uh, each other, I think it's, it's still there. Personally, I think the halving cycle will be there until um, we beat real estate stock to flow. So maybe one or two more, more times, but, but indeed it cannot go on forever. And I like the super cycle theory or scenario because it gives you a, a scenario with, with a, a thought that's, that's very reasonable. And um, uh, yeah, I like thinking in scenarios. So the halving is one scenario. The super cycle is another scenario. Maybe there is even, um, uh, there will be more scenarios. But for me as a quant um, or analyst, uh, nerd also, but... Uh, <laughs> I have to see it in the data. I have to see the mm. super cycle in the data, and right now, and right now, I'm not not seeing it yet, and that's mm -hmm. that's okay. So we have to track that. But uh, for for example, volatility. One of the things that that's within the super cycle theory or view is that volatility must go down. And uh, well, we've seen uh, <laughs> the last couple of months that we uh, we dropped fifty percent twice <laughs> last year. So. Uh, <laughs> I guess volatility is uh, is here to stay, um, at least for for a couple more years, and 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 it, it's also what makes the yeah Bitcoin asset so unique at the moment. The very very high volatility and accompanying uh, return as well, the sharp ratio of one. So yeah, in my view, it's that particular aspect that the high volatility is is not going away soon and uh, so so that yeah that, that it's difficult to reconcile that with the super cycle uh, theory but anyway uh, we'll see <laughs> it's very interesting yeah from, from my perspective you know so, so uh, i guess it's a matter of semantics but uh, 
to me, supercycle is the secular trend. And I, of course, think about that more in the space yeah. of equities and fixed income. And then the, the, the cycle, the part, um, it would be like the halving cycle, right? That's the four-year cycle. We, we've had, we've used to have that in the stock market as well. Uh, but, you know, Plan B, you made some great points. You know, um, I, I do think the volatility is a feature and not a bug. Uh, and it's a feature that will stay with Bitcoin just because it's so perfectly price inelastic, I guess, or price elastic. I, I can't remember which one it is. But if there's never going to be a supply response to an increase in demand, then you're going to have volatility, right? So right. in commodities, you know, if too many people are using oil, guess what? Some oil is going to get pumped somewhere uh, and you got to get a supply response. Or if too many people, there's too much demand for copper, copper mines are going to open up maybe with a lag. You know, for gold, that is less so, of course, because it is a harder uh, to mine uh, commodity, uh, which is why gold has a high stock to flow as well. Uh, but, you know, the sharp ratio, I think it's one in a one point two five. So over the last 10, 11 years, the return is 270 percent. The vol is 200 percent, which are, of course, astronomical numbers, but they cancel each other out and still leave a very good sharp ratio. Although, uh, the, the traditional finance person in me will will point out that uh, a 60-40 index has a sharp ratio that's the same as Bitcoin. It's just that the numerator and the denominator are just orders of magnitude higher on, on both sides. But um, anyway, but so I obviously Bitcoin is in a super cycle that that's, you know, the whole history of Bitcoin has been a super cycle. Um, and whether that continues or not, my guess is that it is based on, on Metcalf's law and the S curves and the stock to flow. But what I think is the most interesting thing uh, in terms of the coming years is that, you know, when I curve fit or regress stock to flow uh, to price uh, over the past, you know, 11, uh, 11 years or so, and I do the same with these S curves. Obviously, by definition, because that's what curve fitting is, is you get a you explain very well what the price has done, and it's been you know of course in sample. Although I've tested, and I don't know Plan B, you've probably done the same, but I've tested your model or my interpretation of your model by uh, using it all in sample until now, or. And you know, starting the out of sample period five years ago, and they have both equal validity as as an ex explainer of what has happened, uh, and that to me makes the stock to flow actually uh, a very robust model. Uh, but I, I will say that you know the S curve model over time starts to flatten out from here, whereas the stock to flow model continues to go up in a straight line or on a log scale in a straight line, which would be an exponential line on an arithmetic scale. Uh, but we're now at the point where those two models are starting to part ways. And the last, the next and last time that the two models intersect is in 2023 at what would be uh, an equivalent price of about 100,000, which is why that's the number I've been using because that's when the models meet for the for the for the last time, right? Because the stock to flow spikes and then it goes flat for a couple of years, um, and that's when the the two models intersect. And from that point on, the stock to flow just keeps going up and to the right, and the demand model goes up and to the right as well, but at a at a slower uh, slope. So that's kind of how I think about the super cycle versus kind of the the shorter cycle. What I'd love to end on here, uh, just to set a little bit of context as well for Bitcoin's role on how you see Bitcoin's role on, let's say, the global stage over the course of the next 
10 years. Uh, so, you know, I want to just caveat by saying I'm not a geopolitical strategist, <laughs> you know, whatsoever, but I certainly notice things that are going on in the world. Um, and it seems like we're probably at a point of peak uncertainty, let's say within the last 20 years or so, right? So we're recording this on February 15th. There's a lot of consternation right now about a uh, budding conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure if you guys noticed, but uh, Russia and China just signed a 30-year 30 30 gas deal uh, pipeline between them that's going to be settled in euros, uh, right? There's a lot of consternation. Uh, so yesterday, uh, on February 14th, Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act uh, in Canada to kind of deal with the, the, freedom, the freedom convoy protests and also uh, in, announced increased regulation on crowdfunding platforms and crypto-related platforms. And all of it just kind of, to me, suggests... Um, Governments being very, very worried uh, and, and maybe clamping down a little bit on their citizenry. I think the, the argument for maybe against Bitcoin is that Bitcoin represents a way to get around a big tool of control for governments, which is the, the influence that they have over their financial system in general. And there's an idea that governments aren't really going to like this idea that people can just have non-sovereign money, um, kind of a, a free-flowing system of cash in between countries. So I'd love to just get your thoughts, if any, on the current geopolitical situation as you see it and what, if any, role Bitcoin has, um, you know, on the global stage, let's say, over the course of the next 10 years or so. Well, what, whatever the future may bring, Bitcoin certainly did enter the geopolitical scene, right? It's, mm -hmm. uh, and it has come a long way because it, it has come from a, uh, a cryptographic programmer's toy, basically, to, um, well, um, a, a collectible that has some value to 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 an asset uh, that even institutional investors uh, take serious, like 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 Fidelity, uh, and, and companies use on their on their treasury um, uh, accounts um, as as money, like like MicroStrategy. Uh, and right now we're seeing we have seen, of course, the first country adopted uh, El Salvador, uh, which is a very small country, uh, but certainly if that. Um, has some some follow up by uh, but uh, well bigger countries like Mexico Brazil or well I don't think Turkey but uh, some 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 bigger uh, country would be uh, opening the, the the entire geopolitical uh, discussion that that was opened um, pioneered by El Salvador and and maybe you, you know I like to think in phases Th those are the phases I think yeah I think. This is a very important phase, um, a make or break phase. And I agree with Urian that it's, Bitcoin is too big and, and, and governments will not choose to ban it, but to, to regulate it and to tax it. Mm. That's at least what we're seeing right now. Plan B, I'm, but, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. That's just such a cool analogy that you have with the phases. Would you mind just briefly explaining the phase analogy for the listeners? Yeah, phase transition is is something from uh, physics. Um, the same thing can be different things. Yeah, well, that, that sounds funny, but for example, water can be fluid. Mm. It can be ice. It can can be vapor. Uh, just when it passes a threshold, the temperature, it it it, it yeah, it would go in, into a different phase. In in um, and you see that in a lot of things. In fact, the dollar also switched phase in 1971 when it was before uh, that it was coupled to the to gold after that it was not it was just floating around in fiat so bitcoin also has these these phases where where it's um well like i said jumped from a, a toy to uh to collectible to an investment a, an asset and uh, maybe now to you know, geopolitical currency well legal tender right and mm -hmm. and uh 
Yeah, so I, it's the same Bitcoin. It's the same software, but uh, it makes a jump um, in its physical, well, assets. And, and, and uh, so, yeah, I, th I think that's very, very interesting. And there is a very fundamental dilemma or discussion with central banks to be had here. Because if you imagine a, a small country like El Salvador making the step to, 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 to adopt Bitcoin as, a, as legal tender, it shuts the door uh, to the to the IMF because that normally a country like El Salvador would would get a loan from uh, the IMF and the IMF would have some some uh, uh, criteria that El Salvador has to fulfill and then it gets the loan and blah blah blah. So, um, but but right now of course it's it's sort of fighting the IMF or IMF is not happy <laughs> and it's it 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 opens some some discussion and. For me personally, uh, having talked to central banks and having worked with central banks, banks a lot, uh, there is a very fundamental thing about, on the one hand, Bitcoin being the best currency uh, th uh, that there is, um, because it's it's absolute scarcity, because of its portability, because nobody can debase it, etc., etc. And the other uh, story that central banks believe in that a currency has to be controlled and has to be uh you have to um like the fed um uh, be able to uh, to print money and to 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 uh to taper uh, and and to to steer and control the economy you have to accommodate when the economy needs it and you have to um to, to yeah to, to to tighten things up if if uh, if it's possible and and i, I guess that control they're not going to give up unless they see that the uh, absolute scarcity and the non-control will bring more benefits to the world. And, and that very firmly, and, and, and I'm not sure if I say that right, but that, that very I see that very fundamental uh, difference in view between central bankers um, that just don't see Bitcoin as money because it cannot be printed. Mm. And Bitcoiners see it as the perfect money because the same argument, it cannot be printed. So, yeah, we have to discuss that. And uh, But the geopolitical phase is, I guess, the ultimate phase. And uh, yeah, very much looking forward to that phase. Yeah, I feel like this gets, gets uh, framed a lot in a pretty negative context, but I, I'm a big believer in, in people. I think uh, maybe it feels pretty divided, at least in the US right now, but I don't think people are as different as it's being made out to be right now. I have a very optimistic view of the future. And I think if you also go back in history and look, um, you know, we've actually done a pretty good job of wresting control from governments or just putting helpful checks and balances in there, right? Like you would look at something like the idea of separation of church and state as being, you take that for granted living in the US today, but that was like a huge struggle that had to take place over like 100 years or something like that. Um, and maybe there's some happy middle ground, right? Where you know, maybe we're looking at the end of one way of how money is looked at uh, through governments. And we say, hey, maybe this isn't really working. Uh, there, are, there are huge problems with it. And Bitcoin can be a big part of the solution or the check and balance, right? Um, so I think there are a lot of ways that this can, this can all play out in general. But I would say I'm pretty optimistic about the future. Guys, we've already gone uh, over the time that we had allotted for this. This has been a super interesting discussion for me. I had a bunch of questions that I didn't get to ask uh, either of you. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. Uh, if folks want to find out more about you or your work, uh, what's the best way to do that? 
Thank you, guys. Uh, I, I would love to talk for a couple more hours uh, <laughs> in the future. I, I could do this all day, you mm -hmm. know. So, but uh, no, th thanks for having us. And um, people that that uh, don't know my, my Twitter account, it's Plan B at hundred trillion USD. That's one o o trillion USD. Thank you uh, equally, and uh, an honor to meet you, Plan B. Uh, Mike and I already know each other, but I'm at uh, at Timur Fidelity. Uh, that's where you can see all my charts. <laughs> yeah, guys, uh, and just for folks, listeners of the show, I'm sure you probably know, I, Urian's been on the show. I'd be shocked if you didn't know Plan B, but uh, definitely go follow them. They put out a lot of great information. I've learned a lot. Um, guys, thanks again so much for coming on the show. We'll have to do it again uh, sometime soon.